So we're going to be in chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians this morning. If you guys have your Bible, I'd encourage you to turn there. And if you don't, there is a Bible in the seat pocket close to you. So grab one of those and we will go there together. As you guys make your way to 2 Corinthians, let me just remind you that uh, the Apostle Paul is writing this letter as essentially a response to the Corinthians' response to his first letter. And so we began 1 Corinthians way back in February, and what we saw is Paul addressing issues that had come up in this church that he had planted in Acts 18. And as the church grew, uh, all kinds of sin issues bubbled up to the surface. And so in his first letter, for basically 11 chapters, Paul had to enter into an open rebuke of sin that had uh, become pervasive inside the church. It was limiting their effectiveness. In spite of being an incredibly gifted church, they lacked maturity. And so what Paul wants to encourage them in, what he desired to do is encourage them to actually love one another. And in loving, it's addressing sin, not just simply tolerating it or making it seem like it's not really there. And so Paul wants to bring this up to them and bring this fully to the surface. And his heart's desire is for them as a church to be sanctified. It's a scary word for us. It seems really big, but what it means is to just be set apart, to be set apart for the work of the ministry. And so this is Paul's heart, and yet, as Paul shares his heart, many do not want to accept it. And so we have now this letter that is very personal, 2 Corinthians, where he is addressing those that maybe were struggling with some of his rebuke, but then also to understand the heart that the Apostle Paul had for the church there in Corinth. Now, as you guys make your way to chapter 7, as I mentioned to you last week in service, that Paul wrote this as an open letter. That he didn't put a chapter and verse down, like we often think. That in fact, chapters and verses didn't completely come together until around 1550 A.D. And so 1,500 years after Paul wrote the letter, there's now chapter and verse. And I mention that because often we finish a chapter and we think in our mind, okay, he's done with that thought, he's moved on to the next. When Paul was just simply writing this as a letter. And so to understand where Paul is coming from in chapter 7, we have to go back to chapter 6. I'll begin there in verse 16, where Paul says, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. And as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Verse 17, Therefore come out from among them, and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. And then verse 18, he concludes by saying, I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. And so as we wrapped up last time in chapter 6, what we see is God actually giving three promises to the church there in Corinth, or the church at large, to us as believers. What he says in verse 16 in the first promises, I will dwell among them, and they shall be my people. That's important to understand because uh, John chapter 1, when we read through that, we get excited because Jesus was the Word, the Logos. He became flesh in verse 14 and dwelt among us. The word dwelt literally means the tabernacle among us. But in this verse, what Paul is communicating to them through the Old Testament is not just as he came to dwell among us, but he's actually come to dwell in us, that we become the temple of the living God. And so his promise is to come and live and have his being in us. Secondly, the next promise in verse 17 is, Come out, therefore, and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. In our world today, we have this concern about, Am I accepted? Where will I be accepted at? Here's the good news 
the Lord Jesus says, I will accept you. If the world has rejected you, here's the beautiful promise. I have accepted you. You are welcome in me. And so we can bring him into us as we become his temple, and then we are accepted in him. And, and, and thirdly goes along with this in verse 18, the third promise. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. So the third and final promise is that we are not just merely his servants, but we are actually his sons and his daughters. And there's a beautiful fulfillment when we consider what it's like to be a, a son and a daughter. And, and for those of you in the room that have children, you get this maybe better than anybody. It, it's how did you feel when you saw that child for the first time? How, how did it move you when they were born? And you looked upon them. And, and I think about this as I was in that spot with our oldest daughter, Cameron, and as she was presented to me there in the hospital, I couldn't have loved anyone any more than how I felt about her right then in that moment. And the thing is, uh, there was nothing really that she needed to do in order to earn it. I just simply loved her because she was. I would have traded my life for her life in that very moment. And, and she had nothing really to offer me. I mean, she could cry, she could poop. That's about it. Cry, poop, sleep. Cry, poop, sleep. Eat somewhere in the middle of all that. And, and then consider what God has said about us. We are his sons and daughters. There is nothing really we can offer to him. And yet this beautiful promise as a son and a daughter is, I don't have to do anything to earn it. He loves me just because he does. Because he said that he does. He has the same view of us that we do of those children. And often I look at my life and what I have to offer him, it's very similar to a baby. I mean, I spend time with the Lord. I can cry. I can poop. I can eat. I can sleep. That's about it. And I look at this, I'm like, Lord, I have, I have nothing to give you. There's nothing of value here. And yet, he so loved us that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And so there's this love that he has for us, his sons and his daughters, to give his life for us. Now, all that leads us to chapter 7, where Paul says in verse 1, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, these promises we just looked at, let us cleanse ourselves from all or all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And so the call is, therefore, in light of everything we just looked at, these promises, we are sons and daughters of him, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness. Now he lists out here two different types of filthiness. The first he notes is the filthiness of the flesh. Now, in the Old Testament, I've shared with you that there are all these different types. And in the Old Testament, uh, the disease of leprosy, it ran rampant, even into Jesus' time. Uh, to be a leper was essentially a death sentence. In our day and age, it's called uh, Hansen's disease, is the closest thing we have to it. And while there are uh, some known medications and cures, in their day, there was not. And so, for uh, Jesus' people in his day, if someone came upon them that was unclean, 300 feet away they had to yell out, UNCLEAN! Because if you were not clean and you came into contact with someone else, they would have the same death sentence as you. And so this disease of leprosy where literally your body parts would rot off, I mean the flesh would rot, this is a type of sin in our life, you see. And so for this disease, as we arrive in Second Kings chapter 5 for our Old Testament story time, in this spot, we have a guy named Naaman, who is the commander of the Syrian army. I mean, he's a pretty important dude. Dude, number two to the king of Syria. But he's got a little problem, you see. 
Uh, he's contracted leprosy. Yeah. So Naaman has a death sentence on him. And yes, he was rich. Yes, he was powerful. Yes, he had it all together, but he also had leprosy. And so as he's down and out because he's got this dreaded disease to which there is no cure, and he's there in his house, he also happens to have a little Hebrew girl that's his servant there. And she makes a comment that it's too bad my master can't get back to Israel where there's a prophet of the living God named Elisha. And so for Naaman the Syrian, he gets word that there's this prophet that maybe there's a chance he could be healed. And so he gathers his men together. He gets a big old caravan, camels and money and blankets and all the things that he could bring to pay off the man of God that somehow he could find favor in the Lord's eyes and be cleansed. He makes his way all the way to Elisha's house in Samaria, knock, knock, knock on the door, and Elisha proceeds to not come to the door. He doesn't even come out to say hello to Naaman the Syrian. Instead, he sends his servant to Naaman, and he tells the servant, I want you to go out to Naaman the Syrian and tell him if he wants to be clean, he needs to only go to the waters of the Jordan River, dip in it seven times, and he'll be cleansed. Now imagine you've heard this word. You've got this death sentence. Naaman gets the word that just by dipping in the water, he can be cleansed. But instead of being overjoyed, he was ticked off. He was upset. I mean, he came, traveled all this way, multiple days journey to Elisha's house, and he won't even pay him the respect to come to the door. How dare he? And then, to top it all off, he tells me to go dip myself in the nasty brown waters of the Jordan River. What Naaman says here in Second Kings is there's multiple rivers in Damascus and in Syria that are cleaner than that river. And so he's upset. He's disappointed in the word he gets from Elisha. And then one of his servants has the bravery to ask this question as he turns and heads back home. His servant came near and spoke to him, verse 13 of Second Kings 5, and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? And so the servant's question to Naaman is, if he had told you something hard, skydive, jump off a bridge, uh, conquer an entire village, would you not have done that in order to be clean? And yet the word was so simple, all you need to do is obey the word of God that was given to you. and You can be cleansed. And so this is the simplicity of it. And Naaman thought, well, why not give it a try? And so they go down to the Jordan River, and what you know if you heard the story in Bible school when you were a kid is once and twice and then all the way up to seven times. And on the seventh time that he dipped himself in the Jordan and he arose, he was completely cleansed. His flesh had no more filthiness in it. And Naaman the Syrian was healed. and He became a believer in God that day. And so this beautiful cleansing, but it wouldn't have happened if Naaman had not obeyed the word of God. If he had not listened to the word that was given him. And so when we consider what filthiness looks like in our life, in our flesh, what literally rots us, it, it destroys families, this filthiness of the flesh, and yet the, the cure is just that simple. The cure is to dip yourself, to, to purge these things out in the water of the word of God. Now you might think I stretched the story just a little bit. Is that all the harder it is? Well, thankfully for you, Bible scholars, we're going to go to Psalm chapter 119, verse 9, which says this, How can a young man cleanse his way? It's a fantastic question. Thank you, David. By taking heed according to your word. 
How can a young man be cleansed? By taking heed according to your word. Now fast forward to the time of Jesus. This is Jesus speaking about being cleansed. It appears in red letters, uh, John chapter 15, verse 3. Uh, what the Lord says in verse 3 is this. Uh, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. You want to be clean, but you're clean not because of anything you did, but because of the word that I spoken to you and that you believed in. Now, Ephesians chapter 5, here Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, speaking again of cleanliness, but this time he's compared us to the bride of Christ. We are his bride, he is the groom. And what verse 26 says is this, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water of the word. If we desire to have cleanliness in our flesh, it is just that simple. We need to plunge ourselves into the water of the Word. How many times? I don't know about you. Sometimes it takes me 5, 6, 8, 27. i, I got to plunge over and over again because I have continual uncleanness that needs to be washed. And so we have this opportunity to, to believe His promises and simply go into His Word and be cleansed of what is destroying our flesh. But back to verse 1, this isn't where Paul stopped. He says, cleanse yourself from all filthiness of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. That when we look at the filthiness of our flesh, those things are actually way easier to identify. Why? Because we can see them. I can see them on you. I can usually see your sin way clearer than I can see my sin. And so we can see the filthiness of our flesh. We know how to address it, but the filthiness of the spirit is actually harder, yet it oftentimes has far deeper and more profound effects on our family, on our culture, on our church. What are some of the filthinesses of the Spirit? They're things like gossip, fault-finding, cynicism, grumpiness, that one hurt, and unthankfulness, just to name a few. These are things that exist in me. I can Clean it all up on the outside. I can look really good and presentable, especially on Sunday morning, second service. I got my Jesus smile on. But inside, what's really going on is a, is a rotting away, a destruction of my spirit. And, and this is what Paul says. I want you to deal with these things. In fact, what Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 16, verse 6, when he's addressing and talking to his disciples here, he says to them, take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Leaven, similarly to leprosy in the Old Testament, it decomposes and breaks down. It's a picture of sin. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. These are your good churchgoers. They got it all together. They're the most righteous people in the land. But Jesus says, beware of the leaven of them. Now the disciples hearing this, because they're wired a lot like you and I, they're like, oh, Jesus is talking about bread again. It's because we forgot to bring the bread. Jesus loves snacks, and we forgot him. And Jesus has to go on and say, ye of little faith, I'm not talking about bread, everybody. I'm talking about a sin issue that exists. In Luke chapter 12, he says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, for it is hypocrisy. Uh-oh, that one hurts. It is saying one thing, and yet doing another thing. It's saying and having it dressed up on the outside, but inside, but we are, in fact, unclean. And so this was the issue for the Pharisees. They had it all together, but because they were hypocrites. In fact, what Jesus would say in Matthew 
chapter 23, verse 23 is this, concerning the, the Pharisees. Now he's addressing the scribes and the Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay the tithe of mint and anise and cumin, but have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, faith. You made it look so good on the outside. You're churchgoers, you're giving, you're serving, and yet you have completely neglected justice and mercy and faith. If you want to know the biggest detriment to people coming to church today, it's almost always hypocrisy. It's, it's why oftentimes people get ran off, they quit pursuing faith altogether. It's because of hypocrisy. It's not being clean on the inside, being cleaned up in the spirit. And so Paul wants to warn them of that and give them an opportunity to address it. He continues in verse 2, he says, Open your hearts to us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have cheated no one. Remember, there were people coming to Corinth saying, You don't need to listen to Paul. He's just trying to steal from you because you got a few bucks. What Paul's wanting to say is, We haven't taken a dime. We have been pure in heart as we've addressed you. Verse 3, he says, I do not say this to condemn, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Paul had to share hard things with them. And it's hard to share hard things. But Paul's saying, I didn't communicate a hard thing to you because I dislike you. I did it in love. It's way easier to just ignore a hard thing and pretend like it doesn't exist than to address it and confront it. And Paul's saying, I want to confront it because I love you that much. Now, verse 4, he says, Great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am exceedingly joyful in all our tribulations. So what he's saying here is, yes, I have had to say hard things. I have had to be very bold in my faith, in my speech towards you. And yet when I talk about you behind your back, you know the things I say? How encouraged I am by you. When I talk about you behind your back, I build you up. I cannot wait to speak to others about you because I'm so doggone proud of you. And so in this way of communicating, he actually builds people up around him instead of tearing them down behind their back. And so I'm encouraged by that, and I also want to challenge us in that. How do you speak about the people closest to you, those that you love, behind their back? Are you ready and willing and able to say, let me tell you some of the good things this young man or young woman or old man or old woman are doing. Let me share with you what God's up to in their life. This is what Paul is saying, how he operated with the Corinthians. For indeed, verse 5, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, inside were fears. Nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And so here's the truth about any time you get into ministry. By the way, you guys are all in the ministry. To be a minister just means to be a servant. There's somebody that each of you are serving on a regular basis. And so as you are in ministry, it is hard. It is not an easy thing. This is what Paul is saying. There's conflicts. There's trouble on every side. This thing ain't easy, everybody. And so as he begins to be downcast, begins to be troubled, notice who the comforter is. It wasn't the Corinthians. The comforter is God. God comforts the downcast. God provides comfort in our time of need. 
And yet the way God does it in the spot is he brings Titus. Now Titus was familiar to Paul. He was one of Paul's disciples. He was one of Paul's spiritual children. And so God brought Titus into the situation, someone he knew and was familiar with to provide encouraging words. See, many times when we're upset and we are looking for a word from God, we we cry out to Him, right? Lord, I just want to hear a word! Speak to me, Lord! And then God sends along somebody familiar. God, I don't want to hear from them. I want you to speak to me, Lord! No, 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 that's, that's someone I know. That can't be a word from God. But so many times, what God does is He uses the familiar. He uses the people closest to us, those that can speak a word in, and if we're not careful, we completely overlook it. This was the case with Jesus, by the way. For the Jewish people, they had been praying for thousands of years for their Messiah to show up. They're looking for a prophet greater than Moses. And here Jesus shows up in a little town in Nazareth, and their feeling towards him, Mark chapter 6, verse 3, this is what they said of him. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? We know his family. This guy? So they were offended at him. They were offended by Jesus because of his family. He was too familiar. He was too ordinary. As Mary Magdalene so desperately wanted to go and anoint and bless the body of Jesus after his crucifixion. She made her way to the tomb. She's there and the stone is rolled away. You remember the story. And she's so heartbroken, so upset when she walks up to the tomb that in verse 15, a man walks up behind her and she, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. Here's Jesus, so close, so familiar, that she thinks he's the lawn boy. Until he says to her, Mary, she grabs his feet and says, Rebel and I, teacher. She didn't notice because he was too familiar, too close. In Luke chapter 24, as two followers of Jesus are on the road walking to the city of Emmaus, and they're making this journey, and they're speaking about everything that's happened, and the crucifixion of Christ, and they're so upset and distraught that the stranger comes and walks alongside the road with them. And in verse 17, he says, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? This is the question this stranger has. And then in verse 18, then one uh, whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which have happened here these days? Who are you, buddy? How do you not know? Do you not get Fox News? Can't you tell what's going on? And yet it was Jesus walking with him the whole time. They'd mistaken him for a stranger because he was so familiar. And oftentimes what God does is he gives us an encourager right there in our midst, a Titus, one who can come alongside and provide that word of encouragement. And my caution to you is don't miss it because they're Don't miss it because they're so close. It might be the very word from God that you've been waiting for this entire time. Now, continuing in verse 7, Paul writes, And not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you, when he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. 
Verse 8, For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I did not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceived that the same epistle that made you sorry, though only for a while, now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. As Paul sent the letter of 1 Corinthians, he sent it um, sort of like at times you sent a text message. You know when you had to communicate that hard thing to somebody you loved and cared about, and as soon as you hit send, you did the, Ooh, ah, ah, I don't know, how'd it go? Maybe they're not going to take it right. I'm not sure, but maybe they will, but maybe they won't. And so all these feelings that rose up inside Paul. Paul's giving us a very human reaction. I didn't regret it, but I did regret it. But then I didn't regret it until I heard how you guys received it. And so he'd sent them these difficult words. And it's true, some did not listen. But there were others who actually made changes, that actually took Paul's words and put them into place, that that made an action with his words. But often we second-guess when we have to say something hard to someone that we love. It's, It's so very difficult. And yet in the midst of that, if you've had to send something hard to somebody, here's what I want to ask you. Um, did you do it so that they would be brought closer to Jesus? Was that the desire of your heart? The best you can tell. If your heart's desire was that they would be drawn into a closer relationship with Christ, then you have to just commit it to Him. You've got to literally just turn it over and say, Lord, I put these words out here. I was doing my best. Would you please do all the rest? And His promise is that He will. You've got to let the Lord Work it out. This is the spot Paul was in. He continues here in verse 10 by saying, For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. And so as Paul's had to communicate these tough words to them, the question is, what kind of sorrow did it produce on the people on the other side? Two different kinds of sorrows are laid out here. First of all, uh, godly sorrow. Godly sorrow. You'll know it's godly because it leads to repentance, which, by the way, leads to salvation, as opposed to worldly sorrow that just simply leads to death. Now, the the word or the term repentance is actually one of the keys in the Christian life. It's a key throughout all Scripture. If you start in Genesis, from the time of the fall all the way to Revelation, this is the heart of God. He is actually after repentance. He's not into mamby-pamby, feel-good messages. It's not, I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay, everybody, let's hug it out. No, it's repent, get your life together, turn back to me so that you live. For Noah, right before the judgment, uh, Peter records in Second Peter, he was a preacher of righteousness. His message to them was, turn your life around so you don't have to die. For the prophet Joel, as he was prophesying to the nation of Israel that was so caught up in idolatry, here's what Joel says in Joel chapter 2, verse 13. Rend your hearts, not your garments. Stop washing your clothes. Wash your heart. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and He relents from doing harm. God in Ezekiel 33 says, I take no delight in the destruction of the wicked. God is not excited about destroying wicked people. He wants us to turn and pursue Him and come back to Him. 
Jeremiah had the dubious distinction of preaching to the nation of Israel for 40 years. You want to know how many people listened? Nobody! Until finally in 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar came down from Babylon and wiped Jerusalem off the map. And Jeremiah had been telling him about it for 40 years. And his message was this in chapter 18, verse 11. Return now everyone from his evil way and make your ways and your doings good. They heard that message. They threw Jeremiah in a pit. People don't want to hear this, but the truth is we need to repent. And when you make your way all the way to Mark chapter 1, as Jesus is just beginning his ministry in the very first chapter of Mark, in verse 15, here's the message. You ready for this? If I could find Mark, I could find the message. Mark chapter 1, verse 15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Here you have it. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the good news that I've come to actually wash away your sin. That you've got to first repent. What is repentance but a change of mind that leads to a change of direction? It's not that we have a works-based faith. We have a faith that works. That as I change my mind, God comes in and dwells in me that then I change my direction. He begins to transform me from the inside out. But just simply being sorry isn't enough. Sorry is just an emotion that leaves you dead. Sorry has no action to it. There are prisons full of people who are sorry. They feel bad. They feel bad because they got caught. They're not repentant people. And so many times this is us. We feel bad, but we don't really want to change it. I don't really want to address that thing. What God's calling us to is to live out a life of repentance. In Jesus' day, he had only 12 disciples, these 12 most closest guys to him. And yet out of those 12, two of them on the very night that he died, completely and totally whiffed. Abject failures. We often think of Judas and his failure because he betrayed Jesus, but do you realize Peter betrayed him just the same? Standing there watching him on trial, he denied even knowing the man. He cursed his name. I don't know this guy. And yet for these two men, that sorrow that they both felt from betraying Jesus, Peter, we're told, whipped, oh, whipped. He weeped bitterly. He cried so hard he convulsed. He was so upset. Judas was so upset by his betrayal that he had of Jesus, he took the money back that he sold the Savior out for and threw it down there in the temple and said, I don't want it. I want it. I don't want it anymore. And yet both of these men had this sorrow, but they led them down far different paths. For Judas did not repent. Instead, he made his way to a tall tree. We're told in Matthew chapter 27, verse 5, that he hung himself there. Worldly sorrow leads to death. He had an opportunity to repent. As he was standing there before the king, Jesus looked him in the eye and said, Friend, why have you come to me? He had the chance for the whole thing to be different, but he would not repent. He just felt bad. For Peter, he felt bad. He decided to go off and go fish. I'm just going to, I don't know what to do. I'm a failure. I'm going to go back to what I know. I'm going to go back to fishing. So he made his way to the Galilee. He's fishing with his buddies, feeling down and out, doing what he knew to do. And then in John chapter 21, 
Verse 7, Therefore the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it, and plunged into the sea. When he realized Jesus was standing on the shore of the Galilee, he wasn't going to wait another minute. He dropped what he was doing right then. He turned away from what he was busying himself with in his, with his hands, and he jumped into the Sea of Galilee, and he swam to be there in front of Jesus. And it was there in John 21 that he was restored. Peter was restored because he repented. He turned away. He came back to Jesus. And as a result, that repentance led to salvation. It led to life eternal. It led for him being restored. Now, Paul continues here in verse 11. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourself, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication, in all things you proved yourself to be clear in this matter, that those that decided to turn and repent, they weren't patiently waiting out their sin. God is all the time telling us to be patient with everything except sin. He doesn't want us to be patient. You know what we're the most patient with in our life? Sin. We don't want to do anything else. We want to just sit here in our sin, right? We want to be impatient with everything except our own sin issues. God, though, says, I don't want you to be patient. I want you to be vindictive. Pull the sword out. Run it through that thing. For Peter, as he jumped in the water, we're told in John 21, he was 200 cubits away from the shore. I did the math. That's 100 yards away. This summer, as the boys had a swim meet, we got the opportunity to swim or got guilted into the parents' relay. I wore some kind of shorty shorts that should have ended my entire ministry. It was that embarrassing. And yet, as I entered the water from the platform, they asked me to swim 50 yards. I got to 25, thought I was going to have a heart attack. I was seeing stars, can't breathe. At one point, I did a backstroke. They're like, Dad, you did a great backstroke. I'm like, I was trying to live. I was trying to breathe. That's what a fat man looks like when he swims 50 yards. Peter wanted to turn so badly away from his sin that he swam 100 yards, probably breathing deep when he got there. This is how we should be at attacking our sin. We should be vindictive about it. We should want to drive the stake through that thing to where it never comes back again. And so, as Peter gets this opportunity to turn away from his sin, to to turn clear of it, this is what Paul says, I commend you that you treated this with vindication, that you were not patient in this thing as you turned away. Verse 12, Therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done wrong, nor for the sake of him who suffered wrong. Well, who are you writing to then, Paul? But that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. You see, it's hard sometimes to administer discipline. But again, to pick on the parents of the room, what you know is to not discipline our kids is to not love them. And so as much as it hurts, This is what God wants to communicate to us too. There are times we have to endure discipline, not because he's mad or upset or angry, but because he loves us. He wants to correct our course of action. He wants to get us going back the right direction. So we are disciplined in such a way. And what Paul's saying is, I I care more about your character than I do your comfort. You see, lots of times we are really worried about our comfort 
But God is not nearly as much as he is our character development. And so in this spot, he wants to see character happening in his children. Verse 13, Therefore, we have been comforted in your comfort, and we rejoiced exceedingly more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I am not ashamed. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, even so our boasting to Titus was found true. What Paul's saying here is, I spoke really good things about you to Titus. And man, was I relieved when he came back and said that they were true. I had, I held my breath a little. Boy, I hope the Corinthians do all these things. And you ever get that report about your kids, you know, from somebody else? Where they come to you and go, I got to talk to you about one of your kids. Immediately in your gut, you, you have the gut check. It's like, oh, stink. What'd they do now? But then they say something really good, and you're like, oh, yeah, a boy, a girl. Now I feel good about what they just said. But it's that, that, that gut check that we have. And this is what Paul's saying. I had a little gut check, hoping you didn't let me down. But as I bragged about you, I got this good report from Titus that how well you had done. As Paul wraps up here in verse 15, he says, And his affections are greater for you as he remembers the obedience of you all. Now with fear and trembling you received him. Therefore I rejoice that I have confidence in you in everything. And so Paul's desire was to actually encourage these Corinthians as they went. Now for the Christian life, I was speaking to an older gentleman in our church, Dennis Cater. He was at first service, and we were talking before prayer a couple weeks ago, and and he said, I I feel like, and I'm probably misquoting Dennis, but he loves me, so he'll get over it. Um, He said, I feel like the Christian life could best be characterized as a life of repentance. That repentance has to be done over and over and over again. As I thought more about that, I thought first, that's kind of depressing. Uh, Because the reality is he's right. My life is one that is characterized largely by having to lay things down before the Lord. That's hard. It's not enjoyable to look myself in the mirror and be really honest about where I'm at. I'd love to be further along. I'd love to not be tripped up and stumbled by this or that. And yet as I look at myself and I confront it, I, I have to just lay it at his feet. Father, this is where I'm at today. And so I find that over and over again I have to repent and the reality is it's hard. It's difficult. We become downcast or depressed about our own state. And what we need, what we also have to have is encouragement along the way. And so as Paul is telling them to repent, notice with me, he is then coming alongside them to encourage them. And oh, how encouragement feeds and fuels the soul. One of my favorite uh the comments from Mark Twain is that he says, I put it on the screen, I can live two months on a good compliment. I mean, how it fuels us and keeps us going. So the first time that I ever got the chance to, to teach the Bible at Parkland Chapel, it was January 2017. And I had just finished uh, reading all the scripture in uh, December of that year. So I just finished reading the book and the pastor asked me to teach for the first time. So it was terrifying to get the opportunity to sit up in front of a room full of mostly people I didn't know on a Wednesday night and get to just share from Mark chapter 4. That's a picture of me there. Yes, I did have more hair in that spot. And so 
as I'm there in that spot, getting the opportunity to share them, share with this church, and I, I'm doing the thing you do as a speaker, you know, I'm panning my way around the room, looking at different faces, and here's this older couple sitting right in the front, and uh, the wife, she looks distraught. She kind of has some tears in her eyes. I'm like, oh, that's not good. And I look over at her husband sitting next to her, and he, he literally looked like he wanted to stab me. I mean, if he had an ice pick, I think he would have jumped on the stage and shoved it through uh, my temple. Like, he looks so, I'm like, don't look at them. That's not good. So I look over here. Look over here. I keep talking. I look back. I'm like, oh, angry guy. And the lady who's crying, look over here again. And I'm thinking, man, this is not going good. And it's my first time. I'm, I'm really not doing a very good job. I'm laying an egg, essentially. So in my mind, I already know it's not good. But then I have confirmation from this couple's face that it's not good. Now, many of you are like, it's still not very good. It was worse then. Okay, believe me, it was worse. And so I get all wrapped up. I pray everybody out. Close my Bible. and People come up and talk to me. And that couple doesn't leave. I'm like, oh, stink. This is going to look so bad for me. And they eventually, they make their way up to talk to me. And Sandy, uh, with tears in her eyes, she begins to explain what God was doing in her heart and what he had been up to in her family, in particular with her son. And she asked me, of all things, as she is giving me not words to destroy me, but actual words of encouragement, she says, do you happen to have the notes from that message? She asked me for my notes. And, and what you guys probably don't know is that I actually type out everything. I don't say most of the things that are on here. It would probably be better if I just read. But I had them, so I was able to hand them over to Sandy and say, absolutely, here you go. And her husband, Harold, who looked like he wanted to kill me, he shared with me that he was a, a graduate from a Missouri School of Mines and Metallurgy in Rollins. Now Missouri S&T was an engineer, and so we had this common bond. And, and he went on to become one of my absolute uh, best friends and best encouragers that I've ever had. For Harold and Sandy, they were, they were like a, a mom and dad, a grandma and grandpa to us while we were away from our family. And Sandy's gone home to be with Jesus now, but I share all that to say that what they really provided in that moment was encouragement. And that had I not had those words, that encouragement, there's a good chance we don't get to be sitting here today. There's no two services at Woodlawn Chapel. It doesn't exist without encouragement like that, where Jesus ordained them to be in that moment to provide those kind of words. And so I want to encourage you all to be that to somebody else. As you see somebody going in their journey, and you see a young man, an older man, a young woman, an older woman, and you just see that they're trying. Maybe they're taking notes. Maybe they got their head down to pray. Maybe they're just trying to figure out where in the heck Second Corinthians is at. I don't know. But just offer up some word of encouragement. You might be the difference between them continuing to press into him and them walking away completely and entirely. And so as we get our hearts ready for we're going to take it here in just a minute. It's a time for us to reflect. And yes, it's a time for us to repent. But as we reflect and we get the opportunity to repent, what God has also done is he has sent encouragers along the way to provide that Jesus with skin off each of us. So I want to encourage you to not only repent and reflect, but then also to reflect upon who's he placed in your life that you can offer a word of encouragement to. So Father, we thank you. And we praise you for your word. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for just being so very 
true and transparent to us. Thank you that in the middle of laying things down at your feet that frankly we wish we didn't have to deal with, we wish oftentimes we were better in that spot than what we are. Thank you for not being far from us. Thank you for always being right there, right there in the midst, right there to offer consolation. Lord, thank you for the people you surround us with, those that are familiar to us, for the Tituses in our life that can come along and provide encouragement in just the time that we need it. So, Father, as we prepare our hearts and our minds for communion, would you please just continue to bring those people to our mind, bring those situations to the forefront, so that we can go, we can depend, and also be a Titus to someone today. In Jesus' name.